Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. Both of our guests today deal in some pretty scary stuff. Our first guest studies the way fisheries are impacted by global warming. Our second guest researches the ways animals kill each other. Both of them will give you nightmares. It's the quantitative ecologist and the tropical biologist. That's Undisciplined, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. I didn't sleep well last night. Now, in part, let me tell you, it's because I was reading about what scientists believe is happening to our oceans as a result of global warming. Not the rising sea levels that we've all heard about for years, but the fish that we rely upon to feed billions and billions of people worldwide. Now, I thought I'd put that out of my mind by watching videos of animals in the Amazon, but... That was even worse. It turns out that huge, hairy spiders and giant, creepy centipedes are constantly feasting on small frogs, little lizards, and miniature mammals. The scientists behind this research are joining us today, and as always, they research very different things. But by the end of our program, I suspect we'll find a lot of ways in which these nightmares overlap. Joining us today on the line from the University of California at Santa Barbara is Chris Free, who is part of a team of researchers whose recent study in the journal Nature paints a pretty bleak picture if you like to eat seafood. Or even if you don't like to eat seafood, but you do recognize the importance of our oceans for feeding the world. Chris, thanks for joining us on Undisciplined. Thanks for having me, Matthew. And with us from the University of Michigan is Rudy Von May who is part of a team of scientists who packed their recent paper in the journal Amphibian and Reptile Conservation full of photos of arthropods like giant spiders eating small frogs, lizards, snakes, and even some mammals. Hi, Rudy. Thanks for being on the show. Hi, Matthew. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. We'll start today with the quantitative ecologist. Got up at dawn just to be out on the water Weatherman said hot and getting hotter But he didn't say nothing about it Raining like hell Always A bad day of fishing beats a good day of anything That is Billy Currington singing about a bad day of fishing. And if my next guest's research is right, we all might be in for a whole lot more bad days of fishing as our planet warms. Christopher Free and his collaborators used temperature-dependent population models to model the influence of warming on the productivity of 124 species of fish worldwide. And as it turns out, some populations do seem to do a little bit better as their environments warm, but twice as many populations declined, some rather significantly. Chris, this was a major undertaking. You and your colleagues looked at hundreds of populations of fish across 80 years. How do you even get started with a project like that? Well, we were fortunate in that we were able to leverage two databases. One is maps of historical temperature over time, and another is the most comprehensive database on global fish populations around the world. And we were able to put those two together and see what the impact of warming has been on fish populations over time. When you realize that there are databases like this as a scientist, do you just get giddy? Oh, it's really exciting to, to have the opportunity to synthesize these major data sets. But doing that, that takes a lot of work, right? I mean, like take, bringing together two data sets is not an easy thing. I gather the, the methodologies for collection are different. The way the data is, is reported within the documents is different. 
And some of these were really, really old. So I assume maybe there was some paper stuff that you were looking at too, right? Yeah, it is a major undertaking, especially because uh, biological data is so noisy. So we have to take a lot of steps to clean the data and, and really interrogate our questions closely. Once you did that interrogation, you saw some pretty significant effects. Can, can you synthesize those for us? Sure. So fisheries are like bank accounts, and we're living off the interest. And what we found is that ocean warming has already affected the interest rate of, of populations around the world. So we saw that among the evaluated populations, there's been a 4.1% decline in sustainable fish catch over the last 80 years. But there have been areas that have done really well under ocean warming, as well as areas that have seen enormous losses in sustainable catch potential. And so what you've seen pretty convincingly is that there is an impact. I mean, I guess we should expect that, right? There is an impact when our oceans warm to how fish species that we depend on for food, how they do in the ocean. Exactly. Fish are like Goldilocks. They don't like their water too hot or too cold. They want it just right. So as water warms, they get pushed out of their thermal uh, preferences. Did you expect to see such significant effects when you went into this? We thought we would see some impact, but we were surprised at the strength of that impact. The ocean has warmed by a little over a half degree Celsius over the study period and is projected to warm even more in the future. So you can only imagine what this might mean for the future. A half degree Celsius doesn't seem like a lot, but that, according to your research, was enough to push some populations of fish to do much better and some populations of fish, more populations of fish to do much worse. That's right. Fish are evolved to have really sort of narrow temperature preferences. So a half degree Celsius can be a lot. And in some places, the warming has been at a much higher rate. Some of the fish did okay when the water's warm. Can you give an example of a species that liked it a little better, so to speak, when the ocean got just a little tiny bit warmer? A really good example is black sea bass on the U.S. East Coast, where warming has actually made waters that were previously too cold for black sea bass habitable. And as a result, it's expanded its habitat and increased productivity. But even more of them were negatively impacted Was there some trait that was shared among fish that didn't do as well as oceans warmed? Yeah, populations that are living in waters that are already warm for that species were generally most negatively impacted by warming. Also, populations that have a long history of overfishing were particularly negatively impacted by overwarming. Now, you mentioned that this all happened apparently as a result of a half-degree Celsius temperature rise over decades. You also said that we expect that the oceans are going to warm even faster. So can we expect a continued linear relationship or is this thing going to slingshot? It's really challenging to predict and lots of people are trying to figure out the answer to that question. But what we do know is that the winners can't remain winners forever. There's only so much warming they can tolerate and at some point their productivity might also decline. So it may be a bit of a a J-curve then. That's right. We expect there will be a tipping point. Oceans are really, really dynamic systems. Uh, I think you use the word noisy. And while it certainly seems to make sense that warming oceans would have an impact on what lives inside of them, how can we be confident that temperature 
is the key that has had this really significant impact on the fish populations that you studied? That's right. We didn't analyze other environmental drivers like ocean acidification and loss of oxygen in the ocean and changing primary productivity. We were only able to look at temperature because it's the only globally complete historic data set available. But it's also known to be a really critical driver of fish populations. So we feel pretty confident that temperature is this really important driver. Can you maybe unpack for us a little bit, you know, the causes of the warming ocean? You've looked at this data set over 80 years. Do we know that the warming that happened in that time happened as a result of human-caused factors? Or is that just kind of the baseline and human-caused factors are going to start to increase the warmings uh, as time goes by in the future? The ocean warming we've seen is certainly a symptom of greenhouse gas emissions emitted by humans and the sort of global climate change problem. And this underscores the importance of reducing greenhouse gas emissions now so that we can mitigate impacts of climate change in the future on fisheries and other food systems around the world. Your paper notes that there are a lot of other factors that will be coming into play and impacting fisheries in coming years. Can you talk about some of those other factors in addition to the warming of the oceans? Yeah, fisheries management is also really important. We found that the the best way of building resilience to climate change is to prevent overfishing and rebuild overfished fish populations. So a really important action going forward is ending overfishing and as a scientific community, learning how to account for these environmental drivers in our management decisions. Ending overfishing sounds like a huge undertaking because fishing isn't controlled by, you know, like one entity. It's controlled by hundreds, maybe even thousands of entities worldwide, and, and not everybody follows the same rules. How do we even get there? We get there by underscoring the fact that we can produce more food and more money by fishing at an economically optimal rate, which is aligns with conservation objectives. So we just have to work on advancing those sort of agendas. I also want to mention that we're only able to detect these changes in productivity due to ocean warming because of government programs that are going out and monitoring the status of fish populations in the ocean. So investing in those sorts of programs is also a priority for the future. What is the next step for this line of research? What are the questions that you want to continue to answer? And what are the questions that are still ahead of you? It's really important to understand how climate change is affecting fish populations in tropical developing countries, which were underrepresented in our analysis and depend heavily on seafood. So a really important next step is to understand how climate change is affecting fish populations in these data-poor regions of the world. We also want to get a more mechanistic understanding of how warming is affecting fish populations, because that can allow us to target our management structures to account for these changes. You're both a, a math guy and an ecology guy. Is it kind of cool when you realize that you get to be both like the mathematician and the Indiana Jones guy at the same time when you do the work that you do? It's awesome. I have equally good days out on the water and uh, right behind my computer. That's Chris Free, whose recent study in the journal Science looks at the impact of historic warming on global fisheries. Chris, can you stick around a bit to chat with our next guest? Of course. I'm happy to. Next up, the tropical biologist. 
We'll just go. Go? I think not. My sons and daughters do not harm Hagrid on my command. But I cannot deny them fresh meat when it wanders so willingly into our midst. That is the voice of Julian Glover as Aragog, the giant spider in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. And if that very fictional spider creeps you out, you might not want to pick up a copy of the most recent edition of the journal Amphibian and Reptile Conservation, because in it you would find a study called Ecological Interactions Between Arthropods and Small Vertebrates in a Lowland Amazon Rainforest, And in that study, you will find picture after picture of spiders chowing down on frogs, lizards, and even some small mammals. Rudy Von May, your team documented 15 predator-prey interactions in which arthropods, like spiders and centipedes, really big ones, by the way, feasted on small vertebrates. How did this all get started? The first observations we documented in the paper were recorded in the year 2008. And I myself had observed some of these uh, interactions, but hadn't been taking a very thorough data. So that's how it kind of started. And then when I started working as a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Michigan with Dan Robowski, the professor, and several uh, grad students and undergraduate students, we went to Peru. And one of our goals was to document pretty much everything we would observe in the field. Most of the photos that you took, I noticed, were taken at night. So I imagine you and your fellow researchers out in the rainforest in the middle of the night, just shining your flashlights this way and that and looking for these sorts of interactions. Is that what happens on these expeditions? We do night surveys. We usually start right after dark. And we go out and we walk along trails. The station has a number of trails. And we walk through the trails with our flashlights. We use snake hooks or snake tongues. If we find snakes, of course, we catch them. As we go along looking for frogs, snakes, lizards, we typically come across a number of spiders and many other invertebrates, like many insects and uh, centipedes, you know, different groups of invertebrates. And whenever we do that at night, we see lots of spiders. They are typically holding another, uh, well, a type of insect, like a katydid or a moth. That's the typical type of prey that you would see. But once in a while, you know, every so often, we found that the prey was a vertebrate. So we started to record those observations very carefully because it definitely caught our attention. At one point, one of your fellow researchers witnessed a spider the size of a dinner plate attacking an opossum. And... At that time, I gather it seemed fascinating, but it turns out to be the first documentation of that species of spider preying on that species of mammal, which makes it all the more exciting, right? That was one of the most remarkable observations. We had three team members going out at night doing the, you know, the regular standard service that we do, and they heard some, some noise on the leaf litter, and they shone our, their lights to the ground, and they saw this big spider. It's a type of tarantula holding onto an opossum. And this is called a, a white-bellied slender opossum. It's a type of mouse opossum. So they are, you know, relatively small size compared to, for example, the Virginia opossum that people are used to see in North America. I mean, this is still a mammal, though, that shares, well, I, a lot of characteristics with other mammals, including us, right? I mean, like, I've seen pictures of these mouse opossums, and, you know, they've got 
opposable digits and they've got eyes and noses and furs like every other cute little creature that we know of. Is it just really creepy or do you get used to this sort of thing quickly? Yeah, well, for us as uh, field biologists, once in a while we see um, predation events. But yeah, I agree. Whenever you see a big spider preying upon a mammal, it definitely uh, triggers some uh, something innate in humans. And to me, one, one interesting thing was the reaction of the public because, you know, the, the, the video was, uh, has been seen by a lot of people and it was shared through different media, including uh, National Geographic, for example. And seeing a big spider preying upon a mammal is not very common. We usually tend to think like a vertebrate preying upon smaller things. In this case, the spider is almost as large as the opossum. I think that's what it probably triggered a lot of reaction. In I must add uh, that a lot of people don't know the actual size of the mouse opossum. So probably a lot of people thought that the opossum was as large as a Virginia opossum, which definitely is not as big as, as a Virginia opossum. It's just maybe, I don't know, one, one sixth or one seventh of its size. This is all really fascinating. It's definitely good to make your skin crawl. But let's talk about the science here. What do all of these predator-prey interactions tell us about life in the Amazon and maybe life in general? You know, the reason we wrote the paper was to compile all of these observations. But to us, a, a very, very important uh, and to some extent underappreciated source of mortality in the wild uh, for vertebrates is uh, inver- uh, predation by invertebrates. Well, when we think about predation of vertebrates, we think about vertebrates preying upon vertebrates. For example, frogs are preyed upon by snakes. They are preyed upon by some mammals, preyed upon by birds. However, we think that uh, predation uh, by invertebrates like spiders might be a very important source of mortality for vertebrates. And to some extent, we say underappreciated because it, it's been only uh, partially documented. There are studies, prior to our studies, there are only a couple of papers that focused on more thorough reviews, like spiders preying upon fishes, spiders preying upon bats. And for us, it was very important to focus on what are the main sources of mortality for amphibians and reptiles, which are the two groups that we study. And overall, we know that our knowledge of these interactions remains limited, especially given the a high diversity of vertebrate prey in the Amazon, and also the high number of potential arthropod predators. That's Rudy Von May, who was the first author in a recent article in the journal Amphibian and Reptile Conservation that documented 15 predator-prey interactions between arthropods and vertebrates in a lowland Amazon rainforest. Hey, Rudy, there's someone I'd like you to meet. Sound good? Yeah, sure. Rudy, this is quantitative ecologist Chris Free, and Chris, this is tropical biologist Rudy Von May. Yeah, hi, Chris. Hi, nice to meet you. So one of the things that I I was thinking about as I was talking to both of you guys is, you know, Chris, you study the way that climate impacts fish species. And Rudy, you study the way animals eat other animals. And I started wondering, like, can we expect global warming, climate change to impact the food choices that animals make when they're preying on one another? What do you guys think? I think that's absolutely possible, Matthew. I think in many cases, climate change is forcing some fish to move, and that means that their predators might have to find new fish to eat. Alternatively, some fish might move and you have competitors moving into your area, and there are all these new and novel communities being formed in the ocean because of climate. 
I think uh, we have been thinking a lot about the potential effects of climate change. One prediction is that some species might be able to move up in elevation. We don't know which ones are actually going to move up. It would be definitely a, a very important topic of study. Rudy, you were listening in as I was chatting with Chris. Was there a question that you wished I'd asked, or, or was there an observation that you made, a connection you made to your own research? There is definitely a connection with my own research because one of the topics I'm studying in the lowland Amazon rainforest, I'm focusing on ecophysiology of tropical amphibians, and that I'm particularly studying the, the tolerance to heat and tolerance to cold of amphibian species. In addition to that, I relate uh, to the research he's doing because I grew up in Peru, and Peru is a country that has a, a lot of fisheries. We have the Pacific Coast. Climatic oscillations are very important on the Pacific Coast for the fisheries. So I definitely uh, connect with the research that he's doing. Rudy, when I was listening to your talk, I was thinking about how uh, in fisheries, when we want to know, you know, who's eating who and how important prey are to predators, we'll look at like uh, stomach contents of fish or do chemical analyses on fish muscle tissue. Is that something you can do with arthropods? Can you, can you figure out what these spiders are eating from their, their stomachs and tissues? Yeah, I think that's uh, yeah, definitely something feasible. Uh, our our team from the University of Michigan, we're not working on that. We would have to uh, collect spiders and, in this case, most likely dissect them, well, preserve them and dissect them and see what are the stomach contents. And uh, probably the, the best approach would be to use a molecular uh, laboratory approaches to study the DNA of the, of the stomach contents. And in that sense, we can match the DNA contained in the digestive tract of spiders and match those sequences, DNA sequences, with sequences from vertebrates, like frogs, lizards, snakes. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a pretty question. Is there a risk to the spiders when they decide to attack these mouse possums? Is it, is it possible that the mouse possum will, will win that engagement? Given that this is the very first observation on, uh, on a large spider preying upon a possum, I imagine that if the possum is not bitten by the spider immediately, the possum may either, well, be able to escape or, who knows, in some cases may be able to either bite the spider or strike back in some way. Um, but yeah, we, I don't know what would happen. There are possums in South America that are larger, and I suspect the spider wouldn't attempt to attack a larger opossum. So in those cases, most likely the opossum either will win the, the contest or will just go away. And most likely some opossums probably uh, prey on some types of spiders. Probably not these uh, large tarantula, but other, other spiders. Yeah. I was thinking as you were talking that a moth sounds like a much easier meal. Do the, yeah. do the possums offer, like, a lot more nutrients? Can the spiders go, you know, a week without eating again? Yeah, I think an opossum would be equivalent to most other vertebrates. These type of spiders are able to prey upon other types of vertebrates like frogs and lizards. To some extent, it would be very comparable. Of course, the amount of, of food that a single opossum provides is, is huge. It's probably more than a, than a single spider can take, but, uh, but yeah, it would be a very important source of protein. However, one thing that I have been thinking is, uh, well, an opossum is most likely not the most common diet item for the spider. It's probably the diet of the spider is composed primarily by invertebrates. Who knows? Probably, I don't know, more than 60-70%, and vertebrates are probably a small uh, fraction of the diet. And that's, of course, just a speculation because we don't have data on, on that. I wanted to ask you guys, to what extent 
can both of you leverage citizen science to do what you're doing? I'm thinking, Chris, a lot of what you do is reliant upon the the reporting of fishermen. And Rudy, as more and more people all around the world have cameras in their hands, uh, even in places like remote areas of the lowland rainforest in the Amazon, it probably becomes more possible to get more and more documentation of interactions like this. I agree because there is a lot of interest in doing ecotourism, go to remote areas, both in tropical rainforests or the tropical oceans. And I think it's always totally worth it to carry a camera. I think the more people uh, are paying attention to what's going on outside, the more uh, these type of events will be documented, including predation events both in, in, in tropical areas tropical forest and also also in the ocean. Yeah. Yeah, and my study is only possible because of support and coordination with the global fishing community. These fishermen are reporting their their catch and they're also often supporting the scientific surveys that are going out and monitoring the status of fish populations. And more importantly, fishermen are out there on the water every day and are observing things and have knowledge that they can share with the scientific community that tells us more about how species are interacting or how climate change is affecting species distributions. There's a really neat example uh, from California recently where a hoodwinking uh, sunfish washed up on the beach right near my office, and it's never been reported to be in this part of the Pacific Ocean before. And just a normal citizen found this and posted a photo to iNaturalist where it got identified, and now we know a little bit more about the distribution of this hoodwinking sunfish and also opens up a whole box of questions about why is it here. I want to thank you both for this conversation. Chris Free, thanks for joining us on Undisciplined. Thanks for having me. It's nice meeting you, Rudy. Nice meeting you, Chris. And Rudy, thank you from us here at Undisciplined as well. Thank you for having me. You can listen to Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at SoUndisciplined. We recorded today's show in the KCPW studios in Salt Lake City. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>